Hi everyone, and welcome to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast, your birth for the best stories in boating. Each week, my colleagues and I will bring you everything from salty stories to thought-provoking trend discussions, as well as interviews with the most interesting characters to ply the sea. Whether you're listening from the boatyard, your slip, or hopefully well underway, we're glad to have you aboard. I'm Chris Dixon, the senior editor of Power and Motor Yacht Magazine. I am speaking with United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer and all-around cool guy and badass and very nice cat, um, Shannon Scaff. Shannon is a native of the South Carolina Low Country who has recently moved to Arizona to take a job with a company that actually trains rescuers. And so I thought it would be really interesting to do a story for Power and Motor Yacht on Shannon's path um, and also the things that he's learned along the way as a result of jumping out of helicopters to rescue people, um, dealing with planning for hurricanes and that sort of thing. So that's where we're, that that's what we'll be talking about today. Shannon, first of all, thanks heaps for coming yeah. and, and spending some time having a word or two. I will say I met Shannon. Um, he's helped me a lot over the course of my reporting on storms and emergencies here in the low country uh, and work that I've done as a as a reporter and a journalist and I met Shannon while I was working on what became the ocean the ultimate handbook of nautical knowledge and I interviewed Shannon and the interview was so interesting that it leads off the boating section with uh, with an essay called things a coast guard rescue swimmer has always wanted to say and I might tap him for a little bit more wisdom on that as well. So Shannon, let's talk a little bit about your childhood um, and what led you on the career path that, that you're still following today. Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks, man. It's been a pleasure to work with you. It thanks. really has. Really and uh, very honored to be a part of that, that book project. And it's a beautiful book. And um, yeah, I'm just really appreciate uh, being invited to be a part of that. Um, so I was raised here in Charleston. Uh, my, my father was an Air Force veteran, and so we did bounce around a little bit. Mm -hmm. But uh, coming back to Charleston, uh, as I grew through my teen years, I uh, spent a lot of time in the water, either on Lake Moultrie or here at Folly Beach, uh, surfing either before work or after work, <laughs> and uh, just have naturally always been drawn to the water. Um, got to a place after I graduated from high school um, where I was really sort of unsure where I was headed, what direction I was going in life. I knew I wanted to do something and I knew I wanted it to be big, but I had no idea what it was. And so, <laughs> you know, um, I'm 18, 19 years old and I'm downtown Charleston running the battery, um, uh, just to get out and get some exercise. And, for and, jog. Yeah. And I see this Coast Guard helicopter fly over, uh, more or less in a hover taxi over a, over a boat, a Coast Guard boat. And they're, they're, you know, doing these rescue, scenarios, uh, training mission, uh, using a basket and hoisting it to and from the helicopter. Did you know that they did that out of here prior to that? I, I, I mean, didn't, I didn't. I mean, you know, I was here for Hugo as a teenager and, you know, of course seeing the news, you know, there were Coast Guard helicopters that were in the area for that. You know, that was well before Hurricane Katrina and of right. course all the people being killed. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, but it just sort of hit me like a ton of bricks right there. Uh, you know, I was, I had this in my mind. What, what am I going to do with myself? Didn't want to go to college, you know, and, uh, 
And then there it was. And I just thought it was the hmm. baddest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And, uh, yeah, it's awesome. growing up in the air force and in the, you know, around the ocean and stuff, I just thought, wow, aviation and the water together, this is perfect. And uh, I went to a recruiter and the rest is history. So that was, uh, that was 1993. Um, still was not uh, aware of the Coast Guard rescue swimmer program. Um, you know, I had seen Top Gun and a guy jump from a helicopter, <laughs> right? you know, um, but I never thought that was actually like a thing. And, and as it turns out, it definitely is a thing. And so had you read, had you read The Perfect Storm? Um, I read The Perfect Storm while I was waiting to go to swimmer school. No which, way. Yeah. That book by Sebastian is just absolutely incredible. And it was what I needed because the swimmer program to get into that, you got to wait. Back then it was about a four year wait. Mm -hmm. Uh, before you got your shot. And of course, you know, routinely a 75% dropout rate. So it's wow, a huge gamble. That high. Jeez. It's a huge gamble to, to wait that long in your career, just to have your shot to go to school, knowing that the odds are against you. Um, and so that book dropped and man, I was on fire for that, uh, that, that world of work after I read the book. And of course the movie came out and, um, you know, it, yes. Did the book good. inform like, I'm wondering how much you knew about the Rescue Swimmer program and what was going to be expected of you before you read the book. And did the book inform how you how you actually went into the school and that sort of thing? You know, well, when I got into when I got into the Coast Guard, I was not real clear on what it was to be an aviation survival technician. It just looked like a badass job, you know, and, and of course, as I began to do my research in the Coast Guard as a young enlisted guy. So you start, so you didn't go immediately into, into the. No, I went to boot camp. I was at a boat station for four years. Mm -hmm. I had my name on the list to go to Coast Guard swimmer school mm -hmm. and it took, they only took six students per class. Wow. So, um, you in know, the whole Coast Guard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Six students per class and they have, you know, a handful of classes a year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay. That program started, I believe in 1985 and there's been since 1985, roughly about a thousand twenty people that have made it through the program. So in all of those years, only a thousand twenty years or so, um, that's just not many. Yeah. And it, it, it's a, it's a very hard thing and there's really no, uh, preparing no book from, yourself or Sebastian or, or anybody else that's really going to prepare you for what you're going to experience when you go to Coast Guard Swimmer School. Um, but it was entertaining and it, <laughs> and it lit a fire under me, right? To keep me motivated to keep my eyes on the prize, right. as they say. Now, in terms of your Coast Guard career for those prior four years, where were you based? What was sort of your low man on the totem pole at that point? What was your what was the nature of your work up until you went to to flight training school? Yeah, so there's all kinds of different Coast Guard units right across the world. I mean, there's there's about forty thousand people in the entire service, and one of the major um, sort of widespread Coast Guard units across the United States are, are these small boat units. We mm -hmm. have one in Charleston. There's one in Georgetown. We've got another one down in Tybee. Okay. So little small boat stations, you know, um, with 41 foot, uh, utility boats or 47 foot motor life boats or, um, you know, back in the day, of course, some of those boats have aged out now, but basically run like a fire station, mm -hmm. um, hmm. where you have a crew that's on, you know, a couple of days and then they get relieved by another crew and it's just sort of back and forth. And so I became a boat crew member, a radio watch stander to monitor the VHF FM radio traffic mm -hmm. and, 
you know, receive um, calls for distress and take that information and deploy our boats. Okay. So I, I was a boat crew member and I, I did that. I was also um, uh, got involved in law enforcement a little bit um, with the as a boarding team member. So, so drug interdiction, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, just really not just drug interdiction, but really just enforcing all federal laws that are applicable to the maritime environment. Gotcha. So. Uh, and based out of where were you based? Out I was of? based out of um, a little boat station called Still Pond. It was on the uh, Upper Chesapeake Bay hmm. on the eastern shore of Maryland, and uh, that's where I did the first four years. And what did you? What were some of the things, the takeaways from that earlier work in terms of? I guess what were what were common calls? What are still common calls today? What what were some of the, I guess, it, what was a typical day if there could be such a thing as a typical day, you know? Yeah, I mean, the summertime in the upper Chesapeake Bay is quite busy. Lots of radio traffic, um, you know, and of course, with lots of radio traffic means there's lots of boat traffic. Mm -hmm. So uh, lots of recreational boaters out there, commercial fishermen out there making a living, you know, with crabbing and, yeah. and uh, rockfish season and all the things that you see up in the upper Chesapeake Bay. Um, but it's a heavy recreational boating uh, area as well. So, you know, we get a lot of, um, you know, boating accidents, uh, you know, vessels taking on water, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, vessels that are uh, uh, maybe operators that, you know, have become lost, you know, and don't know where they're going. Right. Or, I mean, there's a whole range of different things that, that I'd say probably more importantly is the contributing factors to those things, which would be hmm. complacency and experience. Uh, dare I say arrogance? <laughs> you um, dare say, I, yeah. Uh, we've you know, seen it time and again, especially on the qualified captain now. You know, I yeah, mean, yeah. Amazing. I, we got to know our limitations. Whether you're in aviation or the maritime environment, or you're driving a car, I mean, you've got to know what your limitations are. And when you try to exceed those limitations, uh, Mother Nature is probably going to remind you of it. So um, roll the dice, get lucky, roll it again, maybe not so lucky. Um, so that's really, I think, the biggest contributing factor to all these different cases that we ran. I'd say the biggest thing, uh, one of the bigger takeaways from being in the in the boating world was it just made me more hungry for the aviation world. Hmm. Sorry to all my Coast Guard boating brothers out there, but, uh, you know, aviation is just where my heart was. And so, you know, I really enjoyed my time at my boat unit. Um, but when it came to finally getting my chance to strap into an aircraft and fly into a hurricane and... You know, that kind of thing is just, that's really where it's always been for me and probably where it will always be for that's me. That's awesome. Well, so let's talk about um, the, the the training school, you know. Um, what I, you said earlier, nothing will really prepare you for that. <laughs> um, yeah. I'd maybe expand on that a little bit and, and talk talk about, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that there are other folks out there who, who discuss you know, for people who want to maybe go into that line of work, what to expect, but, you know, talk a little bit about what happened when you got there and then, and then, you know, just the experience. Yeah. Well, you know, four years is a long, a long time to sit around and anticipate how painful this is going to be. <laughs> um, and so you get to a point where you're almost like, all right, well, you know, you've got to graduate from that, that mindset and just cowboy up and, there are two types of people, either those that can do that successfully, compartmentalize it and get done what needs to be done mm -hmm. and those that can't. Okay. And there are a lot of really great people that have challenged that program that didn't make it. What do you, that's, that brings up an interesting point because like one of the things that I've always been interested in is sort of how people respond to critically stressful situations. 
you know, and whether, for example, you freeze up, whether you become more analytical, you know, that sort of thing. It, did did some of that come into play just in terms of how people, because I'm sure you've seen how, how different people process a really heavy situation and are some people just, they just process that differently? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, and, and you're hundred percent, I think, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I, I think that, you know, there is a direct correlation between someone who makes it through that program and can manage the stressors and, and even maybe use that as fuel. Hmm. Um, you know, there, we like to say embrace the suck, right? You know, <laughs> that it's things like that, 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 that bring up those phrases like embrace the suck. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you can sit around and think about how terrible this is being underwater and the fact that you can't breathe when your heart's pounding out of your chest because you just did, you know, sprints above water and climbed up a rope or whatever. Um, you can sit around and think about that or you can say, find that peaceful, hey, it's quiet right now. At least I'm not hearing them scream at me underwater <laughs> um, and, and, and find the beauty in that, right? So um, that's the difference is someone that can say, this is my situation, this is my condition, and we're just gonna cowboy up right now. Mm -hmm. And those that can't, and and that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. As you as you know, I've I've done, and I think that this goes for a lot of different careers or 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 things that people do. You know, I mean, I've 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 spent a lot of time amongst big wave surfers, of which I am not one. And you know, I, I did an interview a, a while back with a guy named Greg Knoll, who is a really famous big wave surfer turned commercial fisherman um, who lived in Alaska, and and Greg talked about how you know when you you're getting held under by a three-wave set at YMA at bay you know you you just kind of like you said go down and find your happy place and and realize that there's nothing you can immediately do you wait until you, you know you you analyze the situation and then you and then you wait until that calm period or that your thoughts are straight enough and then you get yourself back up to the surface right you know? and mm -hmm. and it and other people maybe myself included. I mean, you know, I've been in some hairball situations in the ocean and especially with surfing and, and have been like, you know, I, I don't know, like, I don't know that I could, I, I guess I could conceivably survive a, a hold down of 20 foot waves, but I almost feel like I'd have a heart attack before that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And it's, uh, so it's, it's just an interesting, it's always been really interesting to me how people, you know, respond in situations like that what are some of the what are some of the drills and really i guess hellish uh exercises and or situations that you're that 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 you're faced with in the school you know when you're going through the school yeah i mean you know it's changed over the years i went to school in 1997 mm -hmm. it's become i'd say a lot more I'm going to say sophisticated now in terms mm -hmm. of like sports medicine and, and, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, bringing in different types of exercises and different, different types of equipment to help, um, avoid injuries mm -hmm. for our students. Um, so there's a kind of a different approach now than, than back in 1997. When I went through, it was, you know, get on your face, flip over on your back, do flutter kicks, uh, pull ups, chin ups, sit ups you know, sprint work. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're probably, uh, maintaining that for a couple hours and then you're getting in the pool for another few hours for more, 
uh, you know, work without gear and then putting full gear on and, wow. and, uh, sprinting above the surface, you know, starting out with a 500 yard swim, then, you know, a combination of, uh, buddy toes, climbing ropes, you know, doing underwaters from the shallow end to a, a rope hanging from the ceiling. You just pop up and you're in full gear Damn. and you have to climb up and then you're doing pull-ups on the, on the rafters, you know, 30 feet above the pool and, oh, wow. and then you're free falling off of that and, and then repeating it. And it's just, it's just, you know, you know, beat down session after beat down session. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people reference the, the guardian movie, um, and have asked me, you know, Hey, how close is that to, and, you know, I had friends that worked on that movie set and they, they you know, the, the production um, crew, they, they worked closely with the Coast Guard to make sure they at least got it somewhere in the ballpark. Of, mm-hmm. Right. Um, there are a lot of things that they did in that movie that um, to get the point across to the average viewer, they had to sort of almost make it comical, like uh, a brick being dragged along the, the deep end. Well, we we do brick work for sure, but it's those those black rubber dive bricks yeah uh-huh. and um which would look a lot less impressive on a movie screen so they replaced that with a concrete block right. right and so you know there are things like that but the bottom line is here chris it's it's about getting every single candidate to go well beyond their comfort zone and understand that you are capable of so much more than you give yourself credit for mm-hmm. um and those of us that realize that you, you begin to realize that because of that, you can really truly have that no quit attitude. And that's what you want in a Coast Guard swimmer. That's what you want in an Air Force pararescue jumper. That's what you want in a Navy SEAL. That's what you want in a Ranger Delta. You know, these, um, uh, you know, tactical athletes is what I would call mm. them. You know, it's the ability to understand that you can truly go, even though everything in your body is saying, stop, quit, come to the surface. You just plow through that and you keep going. Mm-hmm. And once you've got to that, you are now ready to be a tactical athlete and go out there and be operational. It's interesting too, you know, to that point, like one time I, I did, um, some underwater, um, breath hold and swim training and the, the thing that I guess I didn't realize until I did it was there are these different stages of, of running out of breath. And usually you, you surface at that first stage because it's so uncomfortable. But if you can push past that first stage, then you get to a point where, okay, I've got, you know, you're, you're, you're doing those, those, those involuntary, uh, Almost like to, a hick maneuver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. then and then you can go a bit farther before your body then tells you even more strongly, get the F to the surface. Right. You know? And and that was so I'm sure you you probably did you ever get to the point where you were like you Oh, you better believe it. Closing oh, in. Oh yeah. Um yeah. describe that a little bit for people who haven't really, you know, experienced yeah, Well, that. it's uh I you know, the first thing I have to say, disclaimer, it's dangerous. Yeah. It is, is dangerous. There's something called shallow water blackout. Mm-hmm. And uh, students are made abundantly clear on, uh, you know, there are things that you can do to sort of push yourself beyond that initial discomfort phase. And you basically trick your body into thinking that you don't need oxygen mm-hmm. just by building up, you know, uh, excess carbon dioxide in your system. Is it carbon dioxide in your system? Yeah, yeah. You know, where you're, you're basically hyperventilating 
and you're tricking your body into thinking that you don't need oxygen mm -hmm. because you're blasting large amounts of oxygen in your system at once. But the O2 exchange still has to happen. The, you know, the heart has to do its thing and, and transfer, you know, oxygenated blood to all your muscles Absolutely. and to your, and brain. your brain. And before you know it, you check out and you're asleep underwater. Wow. So you've really got to be careful with that. I think the thing is, it's just honestly, it's building up a tolerance and um, and staying away from, you know, the rapid breathing to trick your, your brain into thinking that you don't need oxygen. I just I'm not one of these professional uh, air, you know, holding holding my breath. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, but I've held my breath for a long time and <laughs> and, and I've had to. Right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's just something you got to be careful of. Well, let's talk about. Um you you made it through the program um and you know let's talk a little bit about your some of your early deployments um you had you had told me when i interviewed you for the book about a about a few pretty hairball ones and one of them i know resulted in the loss of a of the end of one of your digits yeah. um you know let's talk a little bit about your you know kind of how things and did you lose your the end of your pinky finger? Yeah, it's it's not the end. It's oh, completely the whole gone. Thing. Yeah, now, did you yeah. lose? You told me it was climbing down a ladder. Was that? Yeah, that before? was actually before I became a swimmer. Got yeah, it was it was at my boat unit. I was being deployed. Myself and one other guy were being um, uh, sent out on a mission in the middle of the night, and um, you know, I I was complacent, hmm. and I was shuffle stepping down the back with my back towards the ladder. And there was a handrail that wasn't bolted down correctly. Mm -hmm. And we were in a hurry. It was two o'clock in the morning and we'd both been asleep, you know, seven minutes before that. Right. And the alarm went off. And so there's that very dangerous place between being asleep and then a huge dump of, dump of adrenaline because you are being sent out on a rescue mission. Mm -hmm. um, and I got ahead of myself and I lost my footing, tried to catch with my left hand and and uh, fingers come off really easily. So, wow. yeah, that was while I was waiting. So I had to rehab for that before I could even go to swimmer school. So I, I showed up in swimmer school with nine, nine fingers. Nine fingers. Yeah. And you had told me, you know, that that was one of the things that, well, I mean, you know, you, you had already seen it, I'm sure, but just how quickly shit can go sideways even when you think you've got it all figured out, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I teach my students now you know, to take the extra time, you know, you're allotted 30 minute, a 30 minute window at aviation units to, um, to actually get the aircraft airborne, mm -hmm. take every minute of that time that you can, even though I, even though, you know, uh, time is of the essence and you've got to get out there, you're not going to do anybody good, any good. If you, if you rush and you miss something on the pre-flight inspection of the aircraft, or you forget a piece of gear or mm -hmm. you hurt yourself. Um, and so, you know, I was young and, eager to get out there and, and do the, the work and it, and it cost me that night. Um, so, but, uh, but yeah, that was, um, before I became a swimmer. So when you, when you became a swimmer, let's talk about some of your, so you ended up, if I'm not mistaken, in Moorhead city. Is that right? That was later in my career. Okay. So after, after swimmer school, I was assigned to air station, Elizabeth city, which Elizabeth is about city. 45 minutes, uh, South of Virginia beach. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's in, yeah, so that's near. It's the Outer Banks. Yeah, it's Outer Hatteras, Banks. Oregon Inlet, uh, you know, all, basically the entire South Carolina, North Carolina line all the way up through Virginia and Maryland uh, even is kind of their area, all the way out to Bermuda. We've run cases out wow. of Bermuda with helicopters. So you couldn't basically be assigned a more 
treacherous stretch of the Atlantic for your first deployment then? I mean, no, that Elizabeth City is a, they have an extremely high operational tempo, always have, always will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are missions out there that will give a swimmer what they want in terms of being able to go out and, and do what they train to do. You're, <laughs> you're certainly going to get your opportunity. There are some units that are a little bit slower, uh, and there are some that are incredibly busy, and Elizabeth City happens to be one of those. I would imagine like some of the Northern Cal or Northwest stations in Alaska are probably... Yeah, Kodiak and Sitka, Alaska are both extremely busy units. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Alaska's huge, and you know they've got the Aleutian chain and all that that they've got to manage too, so... Um, usually you hear a couple really crazy stories coming out of those units every year. You know? yeah, surprise. So, yeah, I did an extended tour in Elizabeth City, flew on um, the H-60 Jayhawk, or what most people know as the Blackhawk. Mm -hmm. I flew on that airframe for five years, and that helicopter is just a beast. It's unbelievable what it can do in terms of power. Um, you know, it's got long legs, so it allows you to get out there on a with an extra bag of gas, you know, we have an external fuel tank that can strap onto the side mm, that. and that, that allows us even further uh, distance to get out and do um, some of those longer range missions. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so yeah, I flew in and then I did some time on our C-130 aircraft too, the, uh, the huge cargo planes oh, wow. with the four, four propeller engines. Yeah. Um, five years there and then transferred to Savannah where I got to run some rescue out of the low country here before I, finally hung the fins up and became an officer. <laughs> gotcha. So let's talk about then some of your, some of the early deployments, you know, rescue deployments that you saw. Um, I, I remember you telling me about, um, there was, it, it, again, it goes to that point of they don't, there's stuff that they don't train you for that you have to improvise on. And one of those was, uh, I believe you said it was a cargo ship where a lady had had a kid. Um, and, I'll let you take the rest. Yeah, of yeah. Um, man, you've got a good memory. That was a few years ago we yeah, had this conversation. Yeah. Some of that stuff um, really stuck with me. I was like, holy crap. You know? <laughs> so that was my first duty My first duty day as a qualified swimmer. So I graduated from school, and then there's this whole process you got to go through to become actually a, a duty-standing uh, rescue swimmer where the commanding officer has signed off and said, this person has demonstrated the, the sound judgment to go out and, you know, be our guy, mm -hmm. right? And uh, they take that very, very seriously. Um, when you call the Coast Guard and you get a Coast Guard air crew, you're not getting the B team. You're getting the A team um, every single time. Right. Those guys train very, guys and gals train very, very hard. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I went through the process to get qualified. Um, and I got to my first duty day where they said, Shannon, you're the, you're the duty rescue swimmer. And today's day one. And so, Went through the day, nothing happened, and and that night I uh, went to sleep. And, First day. Yeah, and uh, went to sleep, and about I guess it was about four thirty in the morning. A guy that I was assigned with, another rescue swimmer that I actually he and I were assigned together after we graduated, comes in and he's got this big smile on his face, and it's just dark in there. I just see him smiling in the doorway, and I'm like, "What, Jeff?" And he says. You're getting one on your first duty day. Wow. And, you know, he hadn't had his yet. We'd just gone through school together. And he was just thrilled to death that I was going to go out and do something. And I said, well, what is it? And I jumped out of bed and he said, it's a medevac. And then right as soon as he said that, the alarm went off hmm. for, the, for the air the air station mm -hmm. to put the helicopter together and, and go. And he goes, there it is, man. You're going. And uh, probably an hour later or less, I found myself sitting in the doorway 
of a Coast Guard H-60 Jayhawk and a hover over a Greek container ship. I was lowered to the ship um, to medevac the chief engineer's wife, who unfortunately was miscarrying mm. um, and was in the active process of that, which was uh, a bit of a traumatic um, scenario to sort of be dropped into. For sure. Right. So, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I had, they lowered the, the Stokes litter down to me and, and, uh, I carried that up several flights of stairs and their superstructure, wow. um, probably six or seven flights of stairs, you know, through a corkscrew staircase to, to get to her. She was in a stateroom mm -hmm. and uh, I opened the door and there were a few people, I think, you know, the ship's medical person and, of course, nobody spoke English, um, and so there was a language barrier. So that that wasn't really taught in school. Um, mm. You know, getting up and down those corkscrew screw stairs with a Stokes litter was not taught in school. And now I'm going to have to package this woman up, package up the bed linens because I have to do. That's part of that for a. Um, that's just one of the medical requirements. Sure. Um, and then get her down those corkscrew stairs in a Stokes litter. Um, is that the one where you sit upright or is that the one still, where you lay in it? You okay. lay in a cage. It's, it's a, yeah. it's a basket that's very long and yeah. It's, so, so you had to carry this and how long is this thing that you had to carry? I mean, it's the average person, probably right. six foot, you know, six, two, it's, it's bigger, but yeah. you know, you just almost like a coffin really. Like yeah. you're just kind of laying in a basket um, there's also the, the rescue basket, which you sit in. You've probably seen a million times. Sure. And you so, couldn't yeah. put her in that. No, I mean, she couldn't no. She, she was not she ambulatory. Was, yeah. yeah. She was very, very pale, if not gray. She lost a lot of blood. Mm. Um, it was not a good situation. So um, I needed to get her to the hospital immediately. And, and so we finally got her out on deck. And, um, you know, I stayed down and helped manage the, the, the cable that hoisted her up into the aircraft, which was... A, probably about a 120 foot hover or something like that high hoist. Um, and, uh, you know, then they hoisted me off the, off the deck and we went to, uh, Norfolk Centera hospital with her. Wow. And that was my first duty day. And I'm like, well, here we go. And, uh, of course there were no signs of it slowing down. It was, it was rescue. I, I, I would say I had, um, you know, all swimmers, you know, uh, m most swimmers get, rescue missions. I say, I would say that I probably had a, a better than average career in mm -hmm. terms of my ability, my opportunities to go out and do missions. I just seem to have the bug, I guess, <laughs> um, to have the duty on all the right nights or the wrong nights, however you want to look at it. Um, but I did a lot there. It was a very, very active tour for me. You had told me, I remember another one, I, and it's funny because you mentioning me remembering this stuff. I rem part of the reason I remembered it is because I went back through some of the stuff that we talked about in our interview for the book, and you had told me there were there were a couple of others that really stuck with me. One of which was the I believe you guys had to deliver a pump and a gin set to a sinking fishing vessel in a really heavy heavy storm. Maybe take us back back through that one, um, and yeah. and because that sounded like your sort of classic perfect storm, yeah, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, scenario. Yeah, there's you know. Um, <clears throat> The Mid-Atlantic is definitely a treacherous, uh, vulnerable area. I mean, uh, that's the reason why they call it the graveyard of the Atlantic is, you know, Hatteras and that, that area is just very, very rough. Yeah. 
Um, when you take that area that's just rough anyway, and then you put in a nor'easter in January, um, you you get freakish size seas mm -hmm. waves. Um, and on this particular night, it was a it was a January nor'easter that had developed off the Carolina coast. As they do. As they do. And um, uh, definitely one of the worst winter storms I had ever seen. Wow. Um, if not the worst storm I had ever seen um, that was not a named storm. And um, and so uh, I was actually not the duty swimmer. I was working what we call the mid-watch. Um, my job was to wash aircraft, you know, for a three-month period. You know, everybody's really? got to do their rotation. And so... Um, my shift started at midnight and, you know, there was five or six guys that were just essentially, we were, we were maintainers for the aircraft mm -hmm. overnight. Um, so you'll actually have the rescue swimmers even maintain the, maintain. The oh aircraft. yeah. We're all very, we're all very close. We, we pre-flight airplanes together. We post-flight airplanes together. We, um, you know, do, uh, you know, there's, there's jokes about swimmers carrying around wrenches and stuff. They, they don't really trust us with things like that. <laughs> They just they just leave us to being on the cable and jumping out of the aircraft, but it's a it's a friendly rivalry. But yeah, but we get into the maintaining part of it, and that's what I was doing um, on that particular night. I had I was on my three month um, stint uh, for washing airplanes. Mm -hmm. Wow! And um, w which is fine, right? It gives you a, a chance to sort of get off the line a little bit, and um, you know you just sort of do your time that and, and your rotation. But uh, so this particular night, um, I woke up at you know eleven o'clock at night and. The first thing I noticed was the windows just like ready to blow in of my house. Wow. And uh, I knew, of course, that the storm was coming, but it was definitely there. And uh, so I got my stuff together as I normally did and, and uh, you know, kissed the wife goodbye and, and got in my car and drove the five minutes to the hangar. And um, I, it was just blowing sideways, Chris. I mean, you know, it was, it was nuts. It was not like, you know, I could barely keep the car on the, on the road. And so I get parked in, a, in front of the swimmer shop and I managed to pry the door open against the wind Golly, and instantly I'm soaked, right? It's like, it's like quarter to midnight. And the first thing I hear through the wind is the helicopter turned up on the other side of the hangar at midnight in 70 mile an hour winds. That's not engine tests. There's something going on mm -hmm. when they're not up there doing run-ups right now for no reason. Wow. So I'm thinking to myself, this is bad. So I, I made my way across the parking lot to maintenance control. And of course I walked right up and I said, what is that? And they said, they got a big one. They got a big one. And it's a commercial fishing boat taking on water, four people on board. They're going to go out there and deliver a couple of dewatering pumps to this um, boat to see it what they can do. It was also 65 knot winds, 70 knot Yeah, winds. yeah, right at the limit of the rotor brake because there's wind limits for releasing the rotor brake. So you spool the engines up and then you release the brake and then it starts to spin the blades. Uh -huh. And so they are right at the limit to be able to do that. Wow. Um, and, and so pitch black, you know, January, freezing outside, uh, basically a winter hurricane. Yeah. And I just thought to myself, I looked right at, I looked at the names first thing I do is look at the names to see who's going to go out there and maybe not come back. You know, you just instinctively do that. And, uh, we, we don't lose aircraft often. Um, but it happens Yeah, and it's, it's always a possibility and we know that. So, um, so the guys go out there and of course, one of the swimmers is one of my best friends. We're all super close. And this guy's a total stud. What's I his mean, name? 
Troy Lundgren. Troy Lundgren. Yeah. Uh, just, I mean, world-class guy. Look, looks every bit of a Viking or a Navy SEAL. Like, <laughs> he's just a bona fide badass. He really is. I am not. Troy definitely is. Uh, and so, so they go out there and they do this thing and they deliver these pumps. And long story short, pumps, they were not able, the, the crew, the boat crew, the fishermen were not able to get them up and running. Mm. Not a new development. That always happens. People are not sure how to put them together. They, they're lowered in a can. But the swimmers actually do the test run-ups on those things. So they run. We do them every month. Damn. And it, we, we, we pride ourselves on seeing if we can get it started on the first pull it's a gas Briggs and Stratton motor and yeah you know so we maintain those things to um to the T and but you know when you lower them down in those conditions they weren't able to get it running so the, yeah the, I can imagine I mean gosh yeah the, that's the just salt water yeah, intrusion yeah, and, and mist right. and everything and else, they're right? sinking and by the way well I'll, yeah, I'll save go ahead yeah, yeah I'll, I'll save that detail for a moment from now but so the guys come back and I'm standing there waiting for Troy right I'm like the cheerleader on the sidelines. He comes in. I'm like, dude, you know, how, how is it? And he goes, that's the worst I've ever seen, man. That's what he said. He looked at me, and he transferred to us from Kodiak, Alaska. Well. And he said that to me. And when a guy that looks like Troy in stature looks at you and says that, you you listen. Mm-hmm. And, and so he go, I said, well, what are you all doing now? And he said, we're going to maintenance control. They're, they're not able to keep the pumps running. So our, um, our operations center, um, and we want to talk to the boat. So did Troy go down to the boat to try to help he didn't. start? They, he no, it was too down. risky. Yeah. At the time, it was too risky. So they had what we call radar altimeter. They had that set at 80 feet, okay? And as the waves would cross under the aircraft, it would show 20 feet and then back to 80 again. So these fishermen were in 60-foot waves. 12. Yeah, on, on average. Uh-huh. Sometimes you have to even pull power to get... You may be below a wave and, you know, and need to pull up to get out of the way of it. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's the conditions that they were looking at. Near zero visibility, 60, um, 60 foot waves on average, uh, boat running very sluggish and low in the water, uh, definitely in danger of capsizing mm-hmm. in those conditions. All that white water rushing down the face yeah, of those sure. waves. So um, time definitely was of the essence and the guys decided that they were going to go out there and as I sit here and talk to you right now, I can picture what it looked like. I, I was just there sort of in the periphery watching their their, their conversation mm-hmm. happen. I was just so in love with it and just so amazed at how they genuinely, officers enlisted, came together and, and really used crew resource management, CRM principles to genuinely give everybody equal opportunity to talk through everything and do we want to go or not go and it was um, all or none. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, and it sounds like this boat was not going to, to it was not going to make it. Right. No, it was not going to make it. Um, and, and in fact, the pilot says, uh, Mark Ward says, well, guys, um, I'm going to throw it out there, but I'm going to tell you if we don't go, if we don't go, if somebody doesn't go, those men are not going to survive tonight. Hmm. And he just, he very matter of factly said that those, those men will not survive tonight. And I'm watching this conversation happen with them. And I was just so proud. Yeah. You know, they just were just so committed, selflessly committed as Americans to go out there and do their mission. Mm-hmm. And that truly represents the best of humanity right there. Not just the Coast Guard, not just Americans, but humanity. They had just been out there and risked their lives. Now they're going to go back out into it again. 
So they agreed to go out uh, one more time and try to pick these people up. Um, and so I watched them walk out the door. And of course, in my mind, I'm thinking they may not make it back. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all married, you know, kids. Um, and I was excited for Troy to get this big case, you know, it's, that's a, it's a once in a career type of case. If, if, if you're lucky enough to see something like that right. as a swimmer, um, most don't, most don't. That was, a, that was a standalone case. And so they went out there, they, they spooled up the engines, they released the rotor brake and our phone rang. And it was the maintenance control chief that answered the phone. And he says, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He turns and looks at me, goes, Admiral wants another swimmer on the aircraft. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, ran across the hangar, got my gear, suited up real quick into my dry suit and, uh, went out to the aircraft. Cabin door came open. There's green glow sticks chem lights mm -hmm. and my students now have me saying glow sticks my fellow instructors would kill me right now if they heard me say that <laughs> it's chem lights not glow sticks anyway um so you know there's you know the cabin is still torn apart from the original mission and there's troy sitting there with this huge smile on his face because now he's thrilled for me i'm sure there's also a level of relief having you on the on the bird with well that's body. what the admiral said he's you know that list, literally the district five admiral called and said i want another swimmer on that aircraft mm -hmm. like so the entire coast guard senior brass was being briefed on this wow because like all the way up to the commandant i would imagine mm -hmm. um this is a big one and it goes to that level so um admiral says very well go out there and do it but put another swimmer on that aircraft. Well, I happen to be the mids guy. Mm -hmm. And so I went out to the aircraft and said, Troy, I'm here for you. This is your case. And I will do whatever you guys need. And so we got out on scene and, um, you know, first indication. And how long was this flight back out to the boat? How far off? They were off of Virginia beach. I want to say probably 40 miles or so. And how was the flight getting out to it? I can't uh, imagine. It, it was, was absolutely awful. I mean, the, the altitude fluctuations were extremely violent. Um, it was rough. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So you get out there. So I get, you know, we get on scene and, um, I had my back to, um, the, uh, right side of the aircraft. So I'm, I have the hoist right here. My back is, I'm sitting in a troop seat. And, you know, they're, they're basically talking their way through one of the most dangerous things a Coast Guard aircraft can do is make an approach to the water at night. Mm -hmm. It's imagine. very, very dangerous when well, you're night vision goggles and you've zero visibility, you know, and those kinds of conditions, it's extremely hazardous. Um, there's really no time to react at all. And it, you have to, it's got to be absolutely precise. Um, every member of the crew in that helicopter is helping to fly it in one way, shape, wow. or form. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we make our approach to the water. We're established in probably another 80 to 100 foot hover. And I put my, my belt on that's strapped to the deck of the aircraft and the cabin door comes open and immediately we're soaked. Oh, I'm sure. And I turn and I, I look around the, you know, the cabin door and I get my first opportunity to see this boat. 
unbelievable sight, man. Pitch black out there. You couldn't see anything, Chris. It was just blowing sideways, and you could just see through this the really bright searchlight. Yeah, y'all have that crazy searchlight. On yeah, the, on and, and it was piercing through the rain and sleet and snow to watch this boat, like it's not going to make it. And then somehow it would, you know, yeah. and I'm like, holy God, man. And so the briefing was we were going to ask these gentlemen to go to the aft deck of the fishing vessel mm -hmm. one at a time, abandon ship and their Gumby suit. Which I'm sure they were thrilled about. Yeah, these guys did not want to do that, but they also had to get off that boat. Right. And and so we did the briefing that with them. We did the vessel briefing, the hoist briefing. And there's no way we were going to be able to hoist to the vessel directly because if, if there was a chance to do that, we would. But in those conditions, on a sinking vessel and risk our rescue swimmer mm -hmm. being yeah. us. You have to hoist from the ocean. You got to. In that case. You have to. <clears throat> and so um, after a very spirited conversation with the captain of that vessel, we got them to agree to, to jump off the port quarter um, whenever they felt most comfortable doing it. Mm -hmm. and, Lordy. and so after the brief is complete, guy sit Rogers up and says, I understand. He goes to the aft deck with his, with his Gumby suit on and just very unceremoniously hurls, hurls himself off the boat. Now we have a person in the water. Mm -hmm. And it's like a very good friend of mine says, you know, um, when you ask somebody to get in the water, it's your fault until you get them out. So, <laughs> you know, and it, yeah. it's a brilliant way to say that. And it's absolutely true. Um, cause you've basically just taken them from a very dangerous situation and put them into a potentially even more dangerous situation absolutely. from their vantage point, from your vantage point. It's, I don't want to be anywhere near a sinking vessel. That thing can go and flip anytime, especially in these conditions. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, the, the rescue method that we were going to use was called a direct deployment, which basically allows the Coast Guard swimmer to be on the rescue hook, on the cable at all times. And through a series of conning commands that occur between the hoist operator in the back and the pilot sitting in the right seat up front, which okay. is where the hoist is, through a series of conning commands that hoist operator is able to essentially fly the aircraft Jeez. by using the pilot over the target with the swimmer on the cable and basically line the swimmer up with a survivor to do a very quick and efficient recovery of that individual. Basically, bear with a strap. Putting them with, strap with a, them, right? You put a strap around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, bear, the, 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 there's a physical grip pickup that can be used in some cases, but it wouldn't be used. In this case, it'd be a strap underneath the arm. Correct. Right? That's already hooked to the cable. And so we would very quickly get the strap around you, cinch it down, and then up we go together. And then we would re repeat that process. The problem with this is in those conditions, it would be like you dropping a cork from a wine bottle into a washing machine. And you know how that just changes direction Absolutely. constantly? Yeah. Now take a yo-yo, no pun intended, and 
have that dangling over the cork and see if you can keep those lined up together. Oh my gosh, that's a and great now, analogy. Now you don't do it. You close your eyes and let me tell you where the cork is. Mm -hmm. And you're the one with the yo-yo trying to steer it. That's essentially what happened with Troy. And we put Troy down on that cable and I'm going to estimate that he was probably on the cable for 20, 25 minutes. Damn. Down Just trying to line this one, this first guy the, up. We still have three more to get, Chris. Damn. So, so 60 foot waves, we're getting blown all over the place. Mm -hmm. The, the hoist operator, you know, a, a standard conning command would be, um, you know, the, the pilot will say, you know, begin the check swimmer, you know, begin the hoist. And the, that's the flight mech, the hoist operator's cue to then begin lowering the swimmer. And as mm -hmm. he's doing that, he'll say, I have the target in sight, forward and right 30, okay. forward and right 25, forward and right 20, forward and right 15, forward and right 10, easy forward and right, hold position, swimmer's in the water, swimmer has a survivor, I have a ready for pickup signal, prepare to take the load, taking the load, Swimmer and survivor are clear of the water, clear to move back and left. Like so, that is just one example of him. What he sounds like as he's conning the pilot in. The pilot is in turn flying according to what the hoist operator is telling him to wow, do. Wow, man, that's and so crazy. So for 25 minutes, we we did we did this, and ultimately we're not we were not successful in recovering this individual with a direct deployment. I called for an abort hoist. I, I called for that. I said, stop. We got to, we got to essentially pull him back into the aircraft because he was getting beat up. So it was, it was an abort command. And yeah, I called for the abort. Anybody can call for an abort. Okay. Um, and I called for it. And um, there was a discussion before we decided to do this deployment of Troy on whether or not to let him either just swim or, you know, what type of recovery we're going to do. And that's called a rescue brief. And it's yeah. a standard part of every rescue mission. We always back off and talk about it as a crew first. And the decision was made to leave him on the cable because we didn't want to risk losing him. I wasn't a fan of that because I knew in those conditions we were just, it was going to be very, very hard to line him up. And I also know how much we beat the hell out of each other in the pool. Yeah. And I mean, dude, we absolutely do beat the hell out of each other in the pool. I mean, we train very, very hard. And Troy is a phenomenal mm -hmm. guy. He could swim. But, you know, pilots get 51% of the vote in this case. And Interesting. So, I didn't know that. And so they, uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, they're the officers. They're the, you know, the aircraft is their responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, we don't typically look at it that way. We don't get hung up on that. But at the end of the day, they're the commission yeah, officer right. and they're the aircraft commander and it's their call. Right? Gotcha. So, um, you know, but I say that they, you know, use crew resource management and everybody's really got equal say, but at, you know, at the end but of the somebody day, has to somebody's got to sign the final position. Correct. Decision maker. Yes. Right. And so the, the pilot just said, I just don't want to take a chance of losing him tonight. And um, particularly because they, the admiral said, get a second swimmer on there. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was there. If Troy got in trouble, it was going to be me. Right. And until um, later, that's where it remained. Um, and so uh, Troy came back on, on our internal communication system and, and, you know, he comes back and his eyes are, he's not smiling anymore. Uh, he 
had a look I had never seen from him. Um, Troy had seen and done a lot of stuff. He was a very seasoned swimmer. In fact, he responded to the San Francisco earthquake where the bridge opened up and that car drove in. Yeah. He was the Coast Guard swimmer that went down on that. If you've oh seen that gosh. video, yeah. that's Troy that did that case. Um, so he'd done a lot of things. And he had just had his ass handed to him down there. Mm-hmm. And so I said, Troy, I- I'm recommending that you disconnect from the cable and go get that guy. By the way, the guy's still down there in the water, floating around in January in 60-foot waves. So he's hanging at this point? Or no, no, we brought him in. We, we, okay. brought, we brought Troy in. He put his helmet on, mm-hmm. got back onto our internal communication right, system, gotcha. and we, we began to talk through it. And I, I said I recommended a harness deployment of Troy, which would mean he would be deployed via his harness. When he got into the water, he would disconnect, disconnect. and now he's in the environment without a safety line to the helicopter. Essentially, he's on his own. And what that means in practical terms is the eventually the pilot's going to have to line him back up. Troy's going to have to... Um, grab the grab the line and or grab the cable and have the the um, the victim uh, in the in the strap um, and then hook him up and then both of them go yeah together. well well and so in uh, so that's the, the direct deployment is a lot like that where you just stay on the cable but in a harness deployment there's a couple different recovery methods you can do and one of them is the rescue basket. Mm. And because uh, you're essentially what you're going to do is you're going to disconnect from the cable and you're going to swim to the target okay. and you're going to recover the target yourself. You're going to turn around and give the ready for pickup signal. And then, excuse me, and then the, the hoist operator is going to then repeat what he just did a few minutes ago and con that pilot again over the target. Mm-hmm. But with a basket, you got a little more room because you don't need to put the swimmer directly on the survivor for a harness deployment. Okay. And you don't have to put the basket directly over them either. So he it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be so precise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ultimately that's what we did, Chris. We put yeah. Troy in the water. He disconnected from the cable. He managed to reach the survivor, get a hold of him, um, and had to, of course, all the while, the helicopter is going up and down and yes. 60, avoiding 60 at three thirty in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in January and you know, thirty-some degree temperatures mm-hmm. with near zero visibility. Um, this is a bad situation that really teetered on catas- uh, catastrophic, mm-hmm. and and so um, Troy reaches the survivor, uh, puts the ready for pickup signal in the air. And uh, we began our hoisting, our conning procedures to lower a basket down to the general area so that Troy could then put this survivor in the basket. Um, that is a, one of the more dangerous aspects of this. When you have the rescue device in the water with a cable that's in the water and those kinds of seas with waves breaking over you and you're trying to maintain the rescue device and a survivor, Jeez. And make sure that cable doesn't go taut and rip somebody in half. And are you also worried about static electricity? There's that as well. Um, <laughs> oh so there, there's that as well. Uh, <clears throat> so there's a lot of things to consider. And then remember, the pilot's basically blindfolded, being directed by, you know, the the flight mechanic, mm-hmm. um, and trying to paint a picture verbally for the for the pilot. And so we we were able to get the 
the survivor into the basket and hoist him up. And, you know, um, in those seas and in those winds, of course, it created this giant pendulum in the basket where he's swinging violently, spinning under the aircraft. And, Must have been um, like now you know, Troy like is in the water by coaster. himself. We got a boat taking on water with three personnel we still need to get. And Troy is probably 45 minutes into, and we've only got one person recovered. Jeez. So um, we hoisted him up. And as he's coming up, the pilot says, Shannon, um, how do you feel about going in? And of course I was already, I was like, well, you know, are they going to call my number here? Yeah. And, um, because Troy's going to be completely exhausted. Worked. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I said, well, yeah, let's get Troy up and get him on ICS. You know, we'll, we'll see what he says. He might be good. You know, this is his case. And, um, he got on and, and as soon as he got on, the first thing he said was, can you take this one? Wow. Like, we didn't even have to ask him. So I think he was already like, you know, as we get on ICS. And, and so he got on and goes, hey, uh, I'm fine. Can, can you get this next one? I'll get the one after you. You get the final one. So we just worked it out right there. And yeah, yeah I, I do that, man. No problem. So I threw my fins on and, uh, you know, snapped a chem light, put it in my mask and, you know, in the doorway I went. And um, before I knew it, I was disconnecting and looking at the helicopter and a giant wave broke over me and you know, I'm under underwater. Damn. Like, Here we go. So I come How to the big do you reckon the wave was it that broke over you when you when you got in the I mean water they were they were consistently seen. sixty feet. Consistently. Jeez. How long how long did it hold you down? Do you even do you do you even have time? It's to... not long. I mean, you know, when you think about they break like and then they dissipate out right. of the deep water like that, right? Yeah, and, and, and really it's the top twenty five, thirty feet of these things that break and then out white water is what gets but that's you. Still, yeah, so it's not like, like a it's not like a plunging tube or anything. It's it's just, just mushy, crunch. yeah. It's just a, a chaotic mess. Mm -hmm. It's very, very loud. To hmm. those winds and even and over the, the helicopter, the, the yeah, waves. You yeah, can, you, you, the wind and the waves were so loud, I could almost not hear the helicopter. Wow. wow. Um, I, I remember. I've had a number of cases that were in bad conditions. That was the worst conditions I've ever seen. But it, it's always shocking to me how much I have to yell at a survivor that might be like right in front of me mm -hmm. to give them instruction on what I expect them to do. And you can't talk like we are right no, now. Of it's course. at the top of your lungs, you know, and you know, <laughs> you're underwater and you're popping back to the surface and you, you don't Jeez. let go. You don't let go. So you'd been, you'd been, I mean, you grew up surfing too. Um, you know, had you ever, had you ever been in an ocean that had swells that big? Any, I mean, obviously you wouldn't have been surfing in 60 foot waves, but I'm just wondering. No, I mean, you live in Charleston, you know what we get. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, the biggest I think I've, I'd, I'd ever been in as a teenager was, uh, I think bodyboarding in Hatteras. Hatteras gets some pretty good waves, mm -hmm, you know, sure. up there. But, uh, um, no, I mean, routinely in Charleston, I'm, I, I never really saw much here in, in terms of, um, big surf. I think I was just unlucky in that way, but. Was it, what's it, what is it like in those kind of seas? 
I'm wondering, looking, you know, from your perspective, looking up and seeing, you know, a swell's coming and then the, the helicopter, I, I'm just wondering, what are you seeing when you look up at a helicopter and seas like that? Because that's not an experience most people ever get to have. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, there, there is a sense of trust and confidence uh, when you're a swimmer. Or I think when you're really, really any level of tactical athlete, whether you're a SWAT guy locally or a SEAL or whatever you are, mm-hmm. there's a there's a sense of of trust and confidence in your team because you know how hard you work and how dedicated you are to mm-hmm. it, and and so you're aware of the danger, but you've trained so hard you don't really think about those things, hmm. and so when I look at the helicopter, that's my reminder that I'm not alone out there Mm -hmm. though for a second, when you disconnect from the hook and you throw it out of your hands and you see it go up there, there there is a reality that sets in there um, that you could be the first one. And you're out there in the middle of this gigantic ocean. It's tough tough to get your head around. It is. And and you really don't have a lot of time to get your head around it. You need to, you need to get busy and, Mm -hmm. and and you are extremely busy. Um, And so, you know, the, when the waves break, I think one of the things that's helpful about the helicopter is that's very disorienting. So when you come up to the surface, chances are you may be back behind the helicopter. You know, um, uh, it won't look the way it did before the wave broke over mm-hmm. you. And so that's how you you know that they they typically keep the survivor at the, you know, around the two o'clock position of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And so that will help you to orient and go, okay, find him. Yeah, I got to I got to get to him. Um, and so that's what we did, Chris. We, we, I, I picked up the, the second survivor. They recovered me, reacquired the, uh, the fishing vessel. And, um, uh, we just repeated it. And it was, of course, in the last hoist, we had just put me in the water and recovered our last survivor. And, um, I started getting this feeling that if I fixated on it, it was going to be overwhelming. Hmm. But I started getting that doom feeling. While you're sitting down there in the water? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. After we got the, uh, the fourth survivor, I was overcome by this. Oh no feeling. And I'm like, where, where is this coming from right now? I, you know, I didn't like it. Um, because I just thought, if something's going to happen, it's going to be the last hoist, right? Interesting. And um, and so the basket comes down, and uh, I get in the basket. And I never liked riding in the basket. I want to be out with my gear, and you know, I'll take the free fall outside of the basket yeah. if I have to. because you're locked into the basket, yeah, right? You're you're, you're there. So however it lands is how you're landing, and there's really no control there. So are you in the, and you're in the basket, you're in, you've got to put yourself in the lie down basket. No, no. And the, the sit up, the, the sit up basket. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. The lie down basket is for someone who's not ambulatory. Okay. Spinal injury or some sort of medical crisis. Um, so, so you got to put yourself in a cage and get hoisted up in yeah, 60 yeah, foot seas. And 60 foot seas. And so I'm sitting in the basket and I start yelling, come on, come on. And there's, they couldn't hear me, but I was just was so overcome by what was happening. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is it. We're going to either, either 
it's going to go down or we're going to successfully have just done an incredible thing. Mm. And I come up out of the water and a wave dropped out from under me and immediately I started this Damn. violent swing. And I, as I'm on, in the basket yelling at the top of my lungs, you know, no, God, come on. You know, I look and I'm almost looking at the front of the aircraft. And then I swung the other way towards the tail and I looked over my left shoulder and the tail of the, of the Blackhawk, in this case, Jayhawk, is I got a horizontal stabilizer on it and then the tail rotor blades. Yeah. And Which is I, inside of the, the... That's the French helicopter. It's the okay. Finistron on, on that one. But we had... The Blackhawk is, is Has not an exposed It's rotor. exposed, yeah. Okay. So um, the, the swing under the aircraft was so wild that I looked over my left shoulder because I knew I was getting close because I'd just seen the first front of the aircraft and I was worried about hitting the, the back where the tail blades are or where the tail rotor <clears> blades are. And so I look over my left shoulder and I got to a place where I could just about reach out and touch the tail stabilator. Oh my I, it was, that's how bad it was. That's how bad that swing was. And so I, um, for a moment, didn't know, you know, how that was going to go. Yeah. But it was fine man they they got us they got us in you know and we got back home landed shut down and brought four men home amazing oh, and crap. and so that that case was probably my most challenging in terms of like i've had a lot of really challenging cases that was probably my most challenging as a result of mother nature mm -hmm. um that i had ever seen um, and it, it got a lot of attention. It, you know, I, we had the honor and privilege of being named the Naval Helicopter Association Region 4 Air Crew of the Year. We then went on and was, we were named, uh, we got it internationally too. So there's different regions around the world and mm -hmm. then there's, they get all the, the winners of each region and they, they put them all together and, and we, we won it for the, well, the year, not surprised that year. after hearing and, that. And so, yeah, we, and you know, we just uh, Troy and I both earned distinguished flying crosses for the for that case, and um, you know, but we we always said, in fact, we had a, a plaque made for our hoist operator that was in the shape of a fin. We wanted to present to him the shop because mm -hmm. um, it was his first big case like that. Like he's a young guy, had never seen anything like that. And he did a phenomenal job. And so we had on the plaque, we had put on your skills, we survived. Hmm. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. So uh, just, you know, it, it just, when I think back at, you know, you can see it probably in my face right now, but I, when I talk about these and I don't talk about them often, um, it puts you back in, you know, those places. Well, that, and that, you know, brings me to, well, that, that brings up an interesting point to that which is you know how do you how do you decompress from that you know what i mean like how how do you a after you know something like that goes down um 
you know, I'm sure that there's some professional protocols that you're probably supposed to follow, but I just wonder, I would imagine everybody sort of handles that, that differently because it's an easy, it, it, you know, that one turned out well, but it's also a job that's obviously right for PTSD because of the other stuff that you see, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are some cases that you have that are impactful immediately, um, you know, um, that can leave a lasting impression there, mm -hmm. you know, that, that one, you know, is not necessarily a, a, a PTSD sort of event because we brought everybody back and, yeah. and it's a great example of what happens under teamwork and commitment. And, you know, I, I look back fondly on that. What, what we, what we do to decompress, um, first of all, we, we keep it in check, you know, um, egos are, you know, left at the door. Um, we did a thing and if it wasn't us, it would have been somebody else to go out and do the thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, we were fortunate to be able to one, be the ones on call to do the thing. Right. Um, and so you just sort of keep that in perspective. Um, you, you exercise a lot of gratitude, you know, swimmers work very, very hard and they play very hard. Yep. Um, you know, <laughs> working out is, is a big part of that lifestyle. And, um, you know, we, yeah, cause it, I, I'm sure the training doesn't stop once the training no, I mean once once you're through the school, you've got to maintain that. You have that to maintain level of that operational and yeah, physical readiness. That's correct, right? and they're and and they're you know they're very proud of that. They have a very high expectation of themselves and each other to maintain that. And um, and I still, at 49 years old, still try to you know maintain some level of fitness because it was just a big part of my life. And um, you know, uh, work hard, play hard, work out together. Uh, family time, um, and you know, uh, whatever other avenues you have, church, family, um, you know, there's all kinds of things out there that are healthy. Absolutely. You know, we, we of course know that, um, you know, veterans sometimes, um, don't respond real well to those things and, and, uh, unfortunately maybe aren't able to identify or to put into practice healthy ways to cope. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's a real problem in this country, you know, Absolutely. and, and uh, so I, I think it's, it's really on, on us to promote, you know, that, that healthy decompression. And it's something I think I did a pretty good job of, um, you know, there are some that stay with me, but uh, you had told me one time, if I recall, there was a, and we don't have to go real deep into it because I don't necessarily want to raise, you know, memories like that but there yeah. was there was i remember you telling me about a rescue of a uh this was one where it didn't turn out well and you had to deal with that where i think a, a little girl died mm -hmm. um on a boat and um you know if i recall you had to I mean, you were the person in the water with with that family right the the father tell me a little bit about it but you don't have to yeah it was it was detail. um it, it's a, a prime example of one of those cases um you know where you're you're out searching all night long you're tired you know you've got a helmet and night vision goggles and the vibration of the aircraft and it's pitch black out there and 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 um and then all of a sudden you are faced with a scenario right in front of you mm -hmm. and um th that happened to be the case this uh family of four had gone out nice family had gone out for a 
uh, a day trip on a boat, just enjoy the water together. Uh, husband, wife, uh, the wife's sister, and the wife's sister's daughter. Mm. And I believe she was eight years old. Um, and um, they were caught in a storm. And it was just a small, like, summer camp type dinghy, mm -hmm. sunfish type oh, sailboat. Man. Yeah, small. And so it got swamped. And um, <clears throat> they, they essentially were sitting in a submerged boat um, overnight. And uh, the, um, unfortunately, the mother daughter part of that family succumbed to the environment. Mm -hmm. And so when we got on scene, um, the yeah i don't know if i want to talk you don't have to go that. into yeah. it man but it was just it was a it was a rough situation man it went from hours of search boredom to uh complete chaos and and about 10 seconds and Jeez. um you know i had to make a some tough decisions that morning to save two people's lives um, and so that's what I, I did. And then, uh, you know, we, we had a coast guard boat that came and, and recovered the mother and daughter. Mm -hmm. And then, and then we went back out and hoisted them off the boat into the helicopter and brought them to the hospital. So, and that's just, you know, it, it's not all, uh, sunshine and Baywatch, man. It's, it's, uh, you know, being a rescue swimmer, I, I think the, the movie, the guardian is cute. That's what I'll, that's what I'll say. It's, it's cute. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, being a coast guard swimmer is ugly. It's, um, blood and vomit and broken bones and death. And it's not pretty. It's a, it's a very, very hard line of work. It's very rewarding. Um, and it's such an honor to be part of that very tight brotherhood. Um, it truly is to be able to say that I was part of something special like that. Mm -hmm. But it's not sexy, man. It's, it's a, it's a, a very challenging, demanding line of work and, uh, it can take a toll. I can. And, and again, you know, to that, to that point, it's, it's, you know, it seems to me that it's, um, one, you know, I, and I'm sure every other, boater surfer fisherman out there appreciates the hell out of what you're doing and that's got to be part of what helps as well but I, you know it, it's it's um it's such a you you go from i guess you go from this place and and where and it's true with so many jobs whether it's a police fire even my wife is a teacher you know i mean okay. where there's just there's there's so many unexpecteds that come at you and and so compartmentalizing almost compartmentalizing it's got to be hard to 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 lead a regular life you know outside of it and then also you know get thrown into these situations you know that are that are so hairball and mm -hmm. and and it's you know i i've i've uh had the opportunity to do a, a a fair amount of work with the warrior surf foundation here in Charleston and, yeah. you know, speaking with some of the folks, uh, you know, who are involved in that program, um, you know, to you, to your point about it's, it's, it's not all sexy. And, and, you know, I guess I'm, I'm wondering 
if you if 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 there's other folks out there who have been through situations that are that leave a mark like that you know what are some resources or what are you know are there ways that 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 you cope or are there resources that the that the military offers um to help get through some of this stuff and you know if you're dealing with something that you feel like is over more than you can deal with personally you know what i'm saying yeah i mean there's um first of all your team you know the guys Mm -hmm. that you work with every day absolutely you know um I think there's a culture more so now than there used to be, you know, PTSD and the 22 a day and all that, that movement has really brought mm-hmm. to light almost too much. You hear people throw around PTSD, uh, you know, oh, I've got PTSD from this thing or that thing. It's like, man, you, you probably ought to not say that because, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just a recklessly used term anymore. Yeah. It's almost cliche. Um, but, you know, but the flip side of that is I think there's a lot more awareness now. And, you know, I haven't been in the Coast Guard um, since 2017. I retired then. But even as I was getting out, I know there were a number of programs, counseling that's made available through employee assistance with the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. You can make one phone call. You can set up counseling locally. You know, there's, there's always, you know, church if that's, if that's your thing. Um, and, you know, I think the leadership of these, these Coast Guard units has fostered a culture to you know, recognize things in their, in their, um, their crews Mm -hmm. and to promote open discussion. Hmm. Um, even in particularly rough cases, um, you know, they can do uh, critical incident stress debriefings. So Hmm. you take the crew in with a, with a facilitator and, and you talk through as a crew, what you saw and you sort of just sort you know, kind of decompress and download, um, as a way of, you know, kind of purging, you know, what, what happened, what mm-hmm. you just saw. So, yeah, I mean, there's a number of ways out there, but at the end of the day, it, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't take it away. Right. You can't right. put the toothpaste back in the tube. And so, you know, it is a, a tall order. It is a charge. Um, and you know, our, our people that put their lives on the line to do, uh, whether, whether it's, a, you know, an ambulance crew or, or, or strap into a, a police vehicle, you know, or uh, a fire fire station mm-hmm. or, you know, military, you know, I, I think we, we need to do a better job in this country right now of not to get political, but of remembering what we are mm-hmm. and what we're about together. And um there's proof every day, man. It's all, it's all around us with your, sure. your surf, you know, warriors thing. And, and I mean, I think we just need to remember that, you know, there's people out there right now, as you and I are sitting here that are putting their asses on the line to save someone. And, you know, it's, well, that, that brings an interesting, the last thing I thought about when you were mentioning this is, um, you know, the, putting your ass on the line. I think we've got to talk quickly about your episode with the sharks. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Ah, yeah. Yeah. When did th- you get that? I think those have grown a little bit oh since you, gosh. Uh, yes, they have. Yeah. Wow. I've been busy. I've been busy. So let's, 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 you know, this isn't a lighter note story because there was, there were fatalities involved, but let's talk, let's talk quickly about your experience. Um, on that drop 
Yeah, that was an unbelievable mission. And, and yes, I mean, I'll start by saying that it's a case that though it's, it's a memorable one because of an, inter, an encounter uh, with some of my Atlantic Ocean friends, um, it, it, didn't, it didn't turn out, didn't have the outcome that we hoped for. And unfortunately, that's all too often the case. Mm-hmm. Um, two gentlemen did not make it home. And uh, that, that's something that always hits us. Yeah. So for three days, our, our air station searched for a, a recreational, um, you know, um, center console uh, boat. Two gentlemen had left. I think out of Oregon Inlet maybe, and uh, went out on a day-long fishing trip together, and um, something went wrong, mm-hmm. and they wound up missing. And so both of their wives called and said, "We're our husbands are are gone. Uh, they're we've checked uh, trucks and trailers still at the at the marina, and uh, they're missing. It's not like them to, to do this." So we began a search, and for three days we searched, and I was not the duty swimmer. For any of those, uh, uh, for the first two days or any of the sorties. And we had run maxed out time, flight time on many, many crews day and night over the course of those couple of days. Trying to find this specific boat. Yes. Saturating the entire North Carolina coast and some of Virginia probably to um, with C 130s, with H 60 helicopters, with boats, ships. We saturated the Coast Guard through everything that we had to try to find these two, which is not different than what we often do. Right. We need, you know, we lay down these grid searches and we hit every way we can um, to try to find these folks. And so we had done that. And so I was the duty swimmer on the third day, the final day. And I remember um, Mm -hmm. Captain Eric Bader was the aircraft commander. And we're walking out to the plane. He goes, all right, guys, so um, it's us today. Our number's been called. We're we're going to go out and search for this boat, and we are the final air crew. Um, if mm. if these folks are not found by us, they're not going to be found. So I want you absolutely giving this everything you got because we are their last chance. Um, and that's a leader right there. That's that's a guy, and he really, truly is fantastic pilot, great Coast Guard officer, and an amazing American. Um, he just retired not long ago, Mm. but, uh, but anyway, so, you know, he got our, he got our heads fixed on what we were doing. And so we went out and our search pattern had us going off of Virginia beach. And so, um, you know, the computer models had this drift making its way up there. And so we weren't even really in the search area yet. We were pretty close to it and home plate called us and said, Hey, need you to actually turn around and divert and Mm. go South. Uh, there's a boat that's capsized. Um, that meets the description of what we've been looking for. We need you to go investigate it. Well, I start getting out of my flight suit, putting my wetsuit on and, and preparing to deploy C-130 crew is over our heads. And they said, Hey, we'll, we'll beat feet, race you down there, let you know what we see. Of course, they're much faster than we are. Right. And so, uh, they get there on scene and the pilot of that aircraft is a, is a Citadel graduate, uh, uh, and so he and I are both Charleston boys. So he's up in the C-130 flying the aircraft and I'm the guy on the, on the hook Mm -hmm. down the helicopter, which was really cool, um, for us Charleston guys. And, uh, so anyway, I hear his voice come over the radio and, and he says, y'all need to hustle and get down here. 
And that's not something you normally hear mm -hmm. from a C-130 crew. That was very uncharacteristic, um, particularly from Eric, because he's just a cool guy. Yeah. He just doesn't normally talk like that. And, and so both pilots were like, that's weird. So we get down there and we're probably a thousand yards off this uh, boat and um, we're closing in. We're descending um, closer to the water and preparing to approach this vessel. And pilot says, got the vessel in sight. You can go ahead and open the cabin door. And so the hoist operator opens the cabin door and um, we do our hover, hover briefing. And as we're getting through that, he opens the door and goes, oh man, I got a shark three o'clock. And so I look, and the first thing I look at is the boat, and it's still, you know, seven, eight hundred yards off the distance. And I said, ah, we're fine. I see the shark. It's a hammerhead. And I'm like, okay. So I, I sit back down, and no sooner does my ass hit the deck of the helicopter, and he goes, man, I got three more. Dang. And so I, I'm like, what? Well, we've just closed the distance by half now. And as I'm looking down, I see the next three more. And as I'm looking, we start seeing more. He's like, oh, my God, Shannon, do you see this? There are hammerheads all over the place. Wow. And a capsized boat sitting right in the middle of them. Mm -hmm. Not a good look. Oh not a good gosh. look. And so the brief beforehand was that they were going to put me in the water. And, uh, you know, and so we established ourselves in a hover over this vessel. And it's really eerie, man. It's a beautiful day. Crystal blue out there. I mean, just you know, endless visibility. Textbook, picture yeah. book. Beautiful, beautiful. With these beautiful hammerhead sharks just moving very gracefully all around this thing. Not excited, you know, just cruising. Just cruising. But they're around it. They're they're definitely around this thing. And there's more of them than I could count. God. We tried to count and we got around oh sixty gosh. or seventy. Okay. So these things were in the hundreds and they went as deep as you could see from the surface all the way down. Wow. So, um, we, uh, we decided, um, to get the, the numbers off the vessel, call that in to verify that it was actually the boat that everyone had been looking for, for mm -hmm. the last three days. And the, uh, C-130 crews, uh, we're talking with them and it's, you guys see why we told you to, Hurry. yeah, 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 we, we can see it. And so they're, they're up there filming it. They're filming us down close to the water with sharks all over this boat. And, um, and so as we're, we're sitting there waiting on the numbers to come back as a confirmation, the guys are talking in the aircraft and I'm not engaged in the conversation. It's background noise. I'm engaged on my thoughts and what I'm looking at. And I come to the realization that I can't make a determination on whether or not somebody's in the water. Hmm. They could easily, Chris, if you and I had been in a capsized vessel, and one day turned into two and I'm looking at you and you're fried, dude, red hair, light eyes, torched, torched. And I'm like, we got to get under the boat, man. The only way we can protect our faces and our scalps from the sun anymore is to get under this boat right now, mm -hmm. except for we're scared. We're exhausted. We're hungry. Mm -hmm. We've been in water temperatures that are below 98 degrees for a very long time. And we're hypothermic. Mm -hmm. But we got to get under the boat because we're frying. It's day two, and dude, you got blisters all over the place. So we get under the boat, and we work our way from stage two hypothermia to stage three. Mm -hmm. From stage three to stage four, 
and that's sleep. And then stage five is death, I believe. I think you're right. And, and so um, you and I have life jackets on. <clears throat> we had the brilliant idea of getting out of the sun, but we're knocking on death's door because we're asleep, because we're exhausted, and we're beyond hypothermic now. And we're under this hull of this And boat. we're under the hull of the vessel with sharks all around us and a Coast Guard helicopter. Our saviors are right there. And they make an assumption that we're not under right now and they fly away and leave us. Mm. I, that, that was what was in my brain, Chris. As we were hovering over that vessel, that's what was in my mind. Damn. And so right then, Eric Bader says, well, Shannon, I guess we're going to put you down today, huh? And they got a laugh out of it. And I said, well, I, I got to throw something at you guys. And they said, okay, send your traffic. What you got? And I said, well, and I painted the scenario for them. I said, come down and left. And so he comes down, descends down and left. And I'm like, can you see? No, I can't either, man. And I said, I propose that we put me down on the cable. And if I see anybody, I will do a physical grip pickup. We won't mess with a strap. I'm going to grab you and I'm going to wrap myself around you and we're coming up and it's going to be the fastest deployment <laughs> in Coast Guard history. Yeah, right. And they're like, Shannon, we can't do that, dude. Right, we can't do that. There's, there's sharks everywhere. And I said, I've been watching them, man. I think I'm okay. And the they're just cruising. Yeah. Around it. Yeah. You know, but, but I don't know what they're, you know, admittedly i don't know what their what their mind frame is and what their diet is and you know what their level of interest is going to be in mm -hmm. me what i know is i don't want to go back home and not give this every opportunity absolutely to succeed i can't go home and not know for sure whether or not we did everything we could so um the next thing i heard was rescue checklist part 2 for the harness deployment of the rescue swimmer to the capsized vessel and let's go. Wow. And so I, I went down and I was surrounded by more hammerheads than I could count off of Oregon Inlet, North Carolina, with a capsized vessel and nobody under it. Found out there was nobody and that was the only way to know. And that was the only way to know. So you're looking so you're in the, the water. result of that now is more ink than uh, <laughs> Uh, for for people who are listening, Shannon has a radically fascinating, cool tattoo with hammerhead sharks and other sharks, um, basically almost all the way up his right arm. Um, so for people who've not looked down into an ocean full of swirling sharks, you know, what was you, it, it had to be just the most surreal and bummer of an experience too, because the guys weren't there, right? I mean, yeah, there, there's the the heaviness of the overall situation, and you can't help but, of course, wonder, you know, what what happened. You know, if this boat could talk right now, what would it say? Mm -hmm. You know, have we done everything we can? Are they still alive? <clears throat> I, I think there's a not much I can really say about the other two days, but what I can say is that we did everything that we could, and there was nothing left to do. We literally did every single thing we could. And, mm -hmm. and so it, it was a surreal experience. It was a beautiful experience. Um, I'm an ocean guy. I love sharks. Um, believe it or not, this tattoo is um, 
not about my infatuation with sharks at all. It's actually about the teamwork and the love and the trust and the mm. confidence I had to to make that mission happen that day that I memorialized that on my arm. Right so on. when I look at this, I don't see, um, you know, although it's their hammerheads and stuff, you'll notice there's a mako yeah. and, a, and a white shark too. And, you know, the reason for that is, um, you know, some of it is about the trust and confidence and appreciation I had in the team. And the others is about the, the, the white shark and the mako here are about, you know, the, the love um, and respect that I have for the ocean hmm. and its power. And, you know, the fact that God only knows how many times I was within close proximity of white sharks and they took it easy on me <laughs> because I was in the water with a lot of blood, man, you know, yeah. and I never. Damn. And so I just have such an appreciation and, and gratitude because they could have easily taken my ass out at any minute, you know? And so I just, I, you know, out of that came this vision for this, uh, what I think is a very well done tattoo. I think it's an extremely well done tattoo. <laughs> he I did a great job, it's man. It's incredible, man. It really is. Thanks, well, appreciate it. So you, so you, how long were you in the water on this, on this drop? I can't imagine they left you down there for more than. Yeah. A, a couple seconds. It was, so I'll be honest with you, man. I, uh, I'm sitting in the doorway, he pulls the cable up and now I'm standing outside the aircraft in the hover, you know, with my back to the boat and, um, I look at the flight mech and he just looks at me, and goes, you're effing nuts, right? <laughs> over the, over the engines and the rotor blades and all, right. he goes, you're crazy, man. I said, let's do this before I change my mind. And he's just <laughs> laughing. He's like, oh my God, swimmers going down, swimmers halfway down, swimmers at the water's edge. And then we briefed that basically I was going to stay at the water's edge until, um, uh, until such time that the all clear was given. Mm -hmm. I said, J just dump me. Just, just when you see that I'm clear. And so I'm giving the down signal. I'm at the water's edge. My fins are right at the water. Mm -hmm. got sharks all around. And um, I got a clearing and I gave him the down signal. And he's not pushing me. He's not lowering it. I'm like, come on, dude. Now's my window. He goes, no. And he, look, he's, he points. And I look over and I see this big one coming right at me, Chris. Right. At, I mean, just. Dang. Yeah. And, and I was like, I, I didn't see him because of the glare. Right. right? And. I look, he like a submarine man just passed right under me and I look back up. He's like, you know, just completely animated in the doorway up there. Uh, sure. And, um, and so, so down I went and I was underwater, you know, and I, I'm, I'm not, you're not supposed to go under into a capsized vessel. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm doing as I'm supposed to do, um, and not going under it, but definitely getting a very clear look of what, what the situation is. And I probably took an extra three or four seconds gotcha. to just really appreciate what's happening right now. And these hammerheads, as ghostly and weird as they look, man, they're beautiful, beautiful creatures. Absolutely. And, you know, he's got this, this one is passing from left to right in front of me on the other side of the boat. And you could see his his eye was probably twice the size of my fist. Jeez, he his eye was probably this big, uh -huh. and he was a giant hammerhead man. And that thing is looking right at this weird looking, you know, red suited dude, and you could just see it like, what is this? And uh, and so we we met eyes for a second, as goofy as that sounds. I I locked eyes with a hammerhead shark, and. Uh, 
just was very, very grateful for that experience. Wow, and I gave the thumbs up and up I went. And I got on our internal communications system and the pilot said, ballsiest thing he'd ever seen. That's great. And I was like, it really is not that big of a deal, guys. It, you know. Well, let's shift gears a bit and then I'm going to let you go because we've been talking for a really long time and I appreciate the hell out of it. Um, you know, I tapped you, you know, I got so many of these stories. I mean, we ended up having this crazy long conversation for, for what ended up being the lead off segment of my book. And I, I was struck by, you know, when we talked about this for the book, let's talk, let's talk to voters for a minute. Let's talk to voters about some of the main, and, and we don't have to go deep and granular, but let's talk, let's talk in a general sense about the stuff that every voter needs to know based on what the, the rescues that you would most commonly do, you know, and the things that the, the things that they need to really have at the top of their, um, you know, at, at the top of their mind. I mean, one of them was, I remember you telling me, you know, the simple stuff, um, let's the radio, you know, what do people, if, if somebody's in an emergency, what do they need to, what do they need to know? And what do they need to convey to you? Just like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the goal here is to take the search out of search and rescue, right? right. And, um, you know, the industry out there is doing the best it can to, to do that for us. And you as the mariner, um, you have a responsibility to yourself and uh, to your family and to your fellow boat crew members uh, to do all the things to make sure that you stay alive and you know i mean i i think it's about awareness and you know education and um having the right equipment on board um communication is always a huge factor right to letting folks know where you're going and when you're leaving and when you're coming back i mean that immediately is so incredibly uh valuable to a coast guard team that's trying to investigate and come up with a plan on where you might best be. Right. And, and so, you know, you can't take those little things for granted. Hey babe, I'm leaving in an hour. I'm coming, I'm leaving from this place. We're going here today and we're going to be there for this amount of time. And then we're going to that place to grab lunch and then we're coming back and that's the plan. That's my float plan. And that's what I'm sticking to. And then you commit to that. Right. Stick and if you're going to float, float plan, absolutely. and if you're going to change your mind about it at some point, communicate that to somebody. Right. And, um, that you're well within your right as a, as a prudent mariner. And I would encourage you to do that now in terms of equipment. I mean, there's all kinds of great things out there and I'm certainly not the expert, especially after having been in the, out of the coast guard now for five years. Right. And now back in the aviation world, you know, I mean, there's, there's locator beacons. There's, again, it's communication, right? That's communicating what your position is. Uh, radios, right? And, you know, making sure that you've got a radio that's adequate for the type of things that you're doing on the water. There's lots of radios out there. Make sure you've got the one that meets your needs. And if it is one that's more expensive, 
and you know, risk versus gain, if you're going out there and you're unprepared because of something you want to do, but you're not able to support yourself because it's too expensive, then maybe you ought to not be doing that thing. Okay. <laughs> right. So like, you know, let's, let's, let's sort of break it down by the numbers here. I, I try to do everything risk versus gain. I, I truly do. It, is the, is the gain worth the risk? Right. And, and if the answer is no, maybe we need to talk through this a little bit. And, um, so, you know, the radio thing and, and, and while I'm on that, you know, if you were in a situation where you're having a great day and then all of a sudden you're having a terrible day, you know, what are some key elements to taking the search out of search and rescue that, that we would want from you? We, we, they, the Coast Guard would want from you. I mean, you know, it's your position, number one, right? Your, your, your nature of distress. Hey, Coast Guard, taking on water, I'm at uh, such and such north, such and such west. You know, I have four people on board. We're putting our life jackets on. This is the description of my vessel. Um, you know, so your, your position, the nature of the distress, how many people you have on board. If you can get nothing out but those things, and if you can get nothing out but your position, mayday, position, blah, 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 they can get to work on that. Hmm. And immediately, so key, isn't it? it is, man. Position is just absolutely critical. We can get the other details when we can get them and build our situational awareness as much as we can, knowing that time is of the essence. But if you're not able to get out a Latin long, you, you have a situation on your hands that can be catastrophic. You know, where my head goes on this, and I, I, I don't really want to com comment on it too much because we have a saying in the Coast Guard that when you own it, you can talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I don't own this. This happened before I got here, but the sailing vessel Morning Dew situation that happened, very, very unfortunate where um, it involved fatalities of minors and a... Um, uh, I think a, a, an older family member um, and you know they were not able to establish successful communication with the Coast Guard unit what I mean by is two-way communications right sender and receiver receiver receives absolute information you know I believe the sender tried to get out um, a message but the connection of that communication did not happen mm -hmm. And because of that, a, an entire litany of problems happened, and ultimately it cost these three their lives. Wow. And um, so communication is absolutely 100% imperative. Um, at the end of the day, your safety is your responsibility, you know, and folks are going to do their best to come out there and get you. But if you haven't, done everything you can to take the search out of search and rescue understand that there, there's a great deal of responsibility that's put on you as the mariner and Absolutely. so you know get out there and educate yourself and start figuring out what your best lines of communication are because clear blue in 72 and shit can go downhill very fast as, as yeah absolutely right and you know the you you know it's even things like flares, right? Or a CD, you know, a D, well, we don't have DVDs anymore, but something that'll reflect to a, to a helicopter so that somebody can see you overhead, you know, and, and you had made the point. I remember when we talked before that if you have, if you give people and the number where you are, the number of souls on the boat, 
you know, you've reduced that search area from whatever the the tra the transmitting range of your radio or cell phone is to you know a, a fixed location, and then and then by telling the number of souls, they know how you know how big of a rescue to uh, to launch. So those those are just they're so hugely important, you know. And then and then the other you know point that 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 you were touching on is just you know the communications equipment that you use, you right. know, and and educating yourself. What about um, are you surprised? You know, it, it always surprises me that. And and I'm I'm about to take my OUPV um, six pack course in October, which I've been you know want something I've been wanting awesome. to do forever. But I, I'm I'm so surprised, and I guess part of this is just because boating is supposed to be about freedom. But the amount of knowledge you have to have to get a license to drive a car, whereas on a boat there's no there's no lanes, there's no turn signals, there's no brake lights. You know it, the 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 I guess the entry threshold for boating is unfortunately very low in some ways. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about you know, that kind of goes to education, but also like how do you impart to somebody how important it is to really have that knowledge, you know? Yeah. I mean, at, at, at the end of the day, there are resources out there and um, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You know, there's there's courses, there's uh, all the information you could ever want out there. Um, you know, also at the end of the day, you're not going to learn everything you need to know by sitting in a classroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you got to get out there on the water, you got to experience it, you got to talk to people that have experience. You have to be able to um, take a look at somebody that you know. There's a lot of cowboys out there that um, you know. Oh, I got this. I've been on boats with folks like that, and it drives me insane because, you know, there, there, are, there are younger people or inexperienced people that are on these boats with these folks and picking up those bad habits. And it's really just a matter of time before that comedy of errors results in, in catastrophe. So, you know, I mean, I think you just, again, you as a mariner or, you know, particularly as a beginner, it's, it's your responsibility to get out there and educate yourself and find someone to emulate that's a true you know, waterman that mm -hmm. really understands the water, understands the importance of checking the weather, you know, under, understands the importance of communication and float plans and having the right equipment and uh, contingency plans, yep. you know, for fuel or, you know, all the litany of things that can happen to you while you're out there, you know, find someone to be around that you want to be like, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of mariners okay. out there that are like that. Also important is to understand and realize and be able to identify those that you don't want to be like. And, um, you know, that goes to the whole ego thing that I think I talked about very early on mm -hmm. in this conversation. So For sure. Yeah, for sure. And you definitely see it. I mean, you know, you can pull up to one of the places I hear locally that, that is just a textbook case to me is, is Shim Creek, which you and I know. Um, and for those who are listening to this, don't know is a is a very popular um, uh, creek for that's actually got still commercial fishermen operating along it, but it also has a lot of bars with docks, and you know you see some of the some of the most asinine boating behavior. And every every port city's got got that kind of thing, but you know you'll you definitely see that sort of behavior at Shim Creek. Mm -hmm. 
the ego, the ego, and unfortunately sometimes alcohol driven. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about uh? We'll leave this on maybe drinking and boating. Um, you know, I, I <laughs> I'm sure you've seen your share of uh, uh of of idiocy where that where that's concerned. Any any thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything I could really add um, to that discussion that hasn't been said probably a million times mm -hmm. to everybody that's on a on a road or on the water about that. The you know the concern for me is the complacency that exists on the water it invites having a good time. That's why we're out there. We want to have fun. Like, dude, you're talking to a guy that loves to have a good time. I enjoy the water. I love being on boats and I've had many, many drinks on the water. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm also not the one operating the boat. So, um, you know, I, I think that's kind of where you gotta, you know, you gotta make the, you gotta make the decision for yourself. You're going to get into a motor vehicle with somebody that's drunk and they're driving. Um, I would hope not. I lost a friend that way, you know, a coast guard buddy that I flew with wow. killed by a drunk driver. And, you know, I mean, those things happen. We, we hear them here in Charleston all the time. Charleston is a party town. We got water everywhere around here and lots of inland creeks that just invite, you know, boats and drinks. And, uh, you know, if you think it can't happen to you, man, it, it absolutely can. And you I, sure as hell seen that. I have seen it, unfortunately. Yeah. Gotcha. So. Well, Shannon Scaff, um, this has been way more than, than, yeah, well, I was expecting as, as usual, I appreciate the time. Um, I wish you best of luck in this new endeavor. Um, and, uh, I hope we can head out on the water the next time you're in town. Yeah, man, that'd be good. Right I'd, I'd be down for that for sure. Okay. Thanks heaps for the time. This is Chris Dixon with Power and Motor Yacht Magazine, and thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Power and Motor Yacht Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode please do us a favor and leave us a review or rating or you can share us with your friends on social media or on the vhf anywhere you spread the word means a lot to us thanks again and until next time we'll see you on the water Devote.